Welcome to the Yams and Yuka podcast, where we explore the fabric of Black identities through culture, food, art, life experiences, and more. Sharing the stories of international creatives. I'm your host, Heather. Hi, everyone. I'm Kamara, and we are your co-hosts. Welcome to our new listeners joining us today, and a special thank you to those of you who are returning to the table with us. We have a fantastic guest coming to the Yams and Yuka table today, but before they join us at the table, we will go into our appetizer for a bite-sized conversation on today's topic. Let's see what's on the menu. So for today's appetizer, I would love to delve into the topic of the power of representation. I mean, for me, it's so important, especially in the Black community and the arts, and it's one of the reasons why I started my youth dance company, Artistry Youth Dance, because I felt that I wasn't seeing dancers in the dance styles that I, I was particularly drawn to, like ballet and contemporary dance in the UK and it was mm-hmm. something that was really of concern to me that I wanted to you know play a part in in addressing and you know what they say you can't be what you can't see yeah that's a good one so I think it's just always something you know it's just that subliminal message that when you see somebody doing something you're just more inclined to go into those fields it's why it's so important to have representation in all fields, in all genres, you know? Yeah, definitely. I agree with that. I can definitely think back to when I was growing up and all of my dance instructors looked like me. They were all black. All the artists that I looked up to, like obviously in the States, I would see Ailey on a regular basis and not even just Alvin Ailey. Like I would see so many different black dance companies, ones that were on like national and international stages And just local ones, you know, and I think I take that for granted, Mm -hmm. that experience that I had growing up for granted when I am working with, you know, our students through Artistry Youth or any of the other um, young Black dancers that I encounter at the different schools and institutions that I teach in. I don't even realize myself, like how you and I, what we might look like to mm-hmm. our dancers. I don't even think about it. I'm just being, you yeah. know what I mean? Like, I, I don't think about it, but it is extremely powerful. Um, and I guess that's maybe where, you know, sometimes we have that disconnect, or at least I do, where we just don't understand why some of our dancers aren't as motivated or as excited to, mm-hmm. to do things or to see us, or not even just us, like any other artists in the industry here. You know, we kind of have that disconnect. You feel that way sometimes. I do feel that way sometimes, but I think it might be something that you don't really realize until afterwards. Because for me, for me growing up, you know, I grew up in in Australia. There was, I didn't have uh, many black teachers. I had one that was quite significant. I will never Mm. forget him, a tap teacher. He was, he was American. And he was really significant on my learning. But other than that, uh, I didn't, I didn't have any. So I didn't know what I was missing out on because mm-hmm. you don't know what you don't know, basically. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I discovered Ailey and Dance Theatre of Harlem when I was about 16 that I was just like, oh, my goodness, I need to be involved. I need to get to this school. And, you know, when I found out that Ailey had the summer school program, I auditioned and everything like that and I got accepted and the first day at Ailey, I'll just never forget it when I had a black ballet teacher. And that was the first time that I just, I fully, I just loved the class so much. Wow. It does make a difference though. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And it wasn't until that point that I realized what was kind of missing for me. It had mm-hmm. such a profound impact on me being surrounded by all those dancers of different shades of brown. And that's not to say that having teachers that don't look like you can't be effective. I just want mm-hmm. to put that out there. You know, all my teachers yeah. growing up were, were amazing. But just when you have somebody who looks like you, who's a positive role model, it's just a different kind of motivation. But definitely the experience at Ailey that I had when I was 18, that was, you know, something I'll just never forget that. I was just... It was just so exciting. I couldn't believe 
that there were black people who did ballet. I just remember that day in class. You know, I've done ballet since yeah. I was four. And, you know, I, I, I did it. I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine, but I didn't love it like the other styles. But that day I, I did a devil a second and my leg was so high. I, just, I don't know what happened. Oh, I know what happened. You were feeling it. Like yeah. you were inspired. You saw saw somebody who looked just like you and it was just like, it gave you that energy. And to your point of saying that, like, of course, there are other teachers that we've had in our in our careers and our training that don't look like us, that inspire us just the same. But there is something about being with kindred spirits. There's something about being with your kinfolk with your skin folk, you know, because there is a difference. I don't know if y'all know about that. We maybe can discuss that at another time, but you're going to have to, yeah, you're going to have to give me more details. Do you want to, okay, are you ready to dive into skin folk and kin folk now, or we want to save it? <laughs> go on, go, go for it, Heather. You started it now. Okay, well, skin folk, those are people who look like you, but they don't necessarily want to be you. So, example, Uncle Ruckus from uh, Boondocks, who was clearly black as day, but really was acting like he was a white man. Or was like cursing all the other black people and acting like a racist bigot towards his own people. Those are skin folk. So, you know, that's what that is. Kin folk are actually people who have your skin and they're your kin, they're your cousins. They are culturally aligned with you and they support black people and they're not, they don't express hatred towards their own people, Mm -hmm. shall I say, openly and not even just openly. They don't express hatred. They love their people. They embrace their cultures. Skin folk, they're the opposite. They want to assimilate. They don't want to associate with being black. So that's the that's a little quick lesson on the okay, difference. Okay, well, thank you for that. That's a, um, a little hot tip for us and our listeners today. Thank you. I'm not familiar with that character either, but I totally understand what you're talking about. All you need to do is just YouTube Boondocks Uncle Ruckus. I'm sure you'll get some, some clips to show you exactly exactly what i'm talking about you'll get okay. it immediately okay, cool, cool, cool. well that's just some further research for me yes the research do some homework <laughs> thank you thank you um but yeah no i totally understand what you're talking about though and seeing people that can relate to you on that level or that you relate mm-hmm. to rather people that you relate to because if we're talking a teacher relationship then it's somebody that you kind of relate to but you're not necessarily friends but yes makes a big difference also like even in the same note of kinfolk like they have certain experiences in the business that might be similar to some of the experiences that you know the dancers and the and the students will be going through as they're coming up and trying to make it into the industry like there's also much that a white contemporary teacher can tell me about being the only black person Mm -hmm. in an organization like they can't they don't know that experience they haven't lived it even if it is like some of my students that I've seen who are the only black or the only ethnically diverse person in their programs they attach to me in a different kind of way because I am usually the only um, if not the only black person sometimes the only ethnically diverse person Mm -hmm. Yeah. On a faculty. So, you know, they're they're gonna relate to me in a different way. They're gonna have certain questions for me. Their bodies are probably gonna be a little bit closer to mine because, you know, there's there's also that sort of I know for me as black dancers, when I've been in majority white spaces, this is particularly when I was coming up in my college um stroke uni, you know, I was like one of three black girls in my entire graduating class and like one of maybe seven to 10 black dancers across the entire like undergrad and postgrad program, not just undergrad, undergrad and postgrad. Wow. In America. Yes, girl. (laughs) Like it was only a handful of us. Mm -hmm. So like there were just certain things that like our teachers are particularly our white teachers would ask of us. And I'm just like, my body don't do that. Right. Like, it just doesn't do that. But I did have a black ballet teacher at Florida State, which was incredible. And I did have Jaole, who was there as one of our contemporary teachers, which was great. Mm. You know, and to have, you know, of our ballet faculty, to have at least one black teacher out of the four or five, that was incredible. That was unexpected for me, honestly. And I believe she is now the head of ballet at Mm -hmm. Florida State, which is great because that was like, 
or she might even be head of the entire dance department, the dance school, which is like was unheard of. Do you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. So no, it's really important. It makes a difference. Yeah. yeah. And and I find even with my students, when I'm teaching the dancers that artistry youth, like I'm relating to them in a completely different way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I was a young black girl. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? So I can I can give them at least that, you know, not necessarily in the British context, but I can give them something about what it means to be in this body and try to dance and do different styles. Yeah. So, yeah, that's really, really important. Yeah, absolutely. So that is what we will be exploring today when we yeah. when we bring our guests to the table. Yeah, and we're looking forward to it. So we're going to take a quick little break. Um, We've had a nice little bite-sized conversation, and then we'll come back and dive right into it. We'll be right back. Welcome back. It's time to introduce our dinner guest for today. We are joined by Maxine Beanaber-Clark. Before she joins us, I will share some information about her. Maxine is a widely published Australian author of Afro-Caribbean descent. Her short fiction, non-fiction and poetry have been published in numerous publications, including Overland, The Age, Mianjin, The Saturday Paper and The Big Issue. Her critically acclaimed short fiction collection, Foreign Soil, won the Australian Book Industry Award, or API, for Literary Fiction Book of the Year 2015 and the 2015 Indie Book Award for Debut Fiction. Foreign Soil was shortlisted for the Matt Ritchell Award for New Writing at the 2015 ABIAs and the 2015 Seller Prize. She was also named as one of Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Novelists for 2015. Maxine has published three poetry collections, including Carrying the World, which won the Victorian Premier Literary Award for Poetry 2017 and was shortlisted for the Colin Roderick Award. The Hate Race, a memoir about growing up black in Australia, won the New South Wales Premier's Literary Award, Multicultural New South Wales Award 2017, and was shortlisted for an ABI. An Indie Award, the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards and Stella Prize, the Patchwork Bike, Maxine's first picture book with Van T. Rudd, was a CBCA Honour Book for 2017. Goodness gracious, Maxine. And I know that's only some of your work because that doesn't even include your most recent things but welcome Max. <laughs> thank you thanks for having me on yams and yuka you're welcome we're happy to have you here and it's excellent to hear all the things you've done and we are looking forward to learning more about you but before we dive into your work um, I'm sure you probably get this question all the time. I certainly asked Kamara this when I first met her, um, what, five, six years ago. But first, let's talk about your childhood and, well, not necessarily your childhood, but your earlier years. And what was it like growing up Black in Australia? <laughs> well, yeah. So my parents were born in Jamaica and Guyana, and mm. their parents migrated to England. Um, in the 1950s. So they both were raised, you know, fundamentally black British. And then my dad got a job out here in 1976 at a university out here. He was an academic. So I grew up in kind of white picket fence Australia in the 80s and 90s. And I mean, it's funny, people always ask me about this, which is part of the reason why I ended up writing a memoir about it. But it wasn't wasn't a strange thing for me to be growing up as an African diaspora person in Australia because that was just your life, you know. I think as a as a preteen, you don't really think that much about it, or at least I didn't. It was only kind of as I got older that I thought this is actually quite a unique experience. Um, obviously, Australia is Black Aboriginal land. But being an African diaspora person growing up on that land is, you know, it was quite unusual at that time. Mm. And do you have any significant memories that shaped you while you were growing up there? I mean, you're saying you weren't really as aware. And I do find that, you know, typically, depending on how young children are raised in general, you know, they don't see those sort of separations until they're actually pointed out to them. But do you have any memories of those experiences that kind of shaped you? Yeah, definitely. You know, 
uh, experiences at preschool with other kids kind of pointing out your blackness and asking you where mm-hmm. you come from or just repeatedly, you know, realising that this was really a significant thing for other people, even mm-hmm. though it might not be a significant thing for you as a child. And I think also, you know, every four or five years we would travel back to the UK and as I got older, just seeing the black community, you know, in Tottenham and, you know, various places that we would go and the different feeling of that, you know, of passing black hair sal- salons and black eateries and black barbers mm-hmm. and black people on the street and just contextualising, you know, starting to ask those questions of, well, where did, you know, where did grandma and granddad come from and, and you know, what, what does that mean for me? Mm, and did they share any stories with you at that age or was it later that you started to to dig into that history? I mean, I remember kind of some anecdotal stories. Like I remember my mum telling me a story about my mum went to a grammar school and she was the only kid in her family that got into this grammar school and for high school in, in London. And she would tell me this story that she had to walk through I don't know whether it was kind of these woods or a park or some kind of area where there was a lot of foliage and these girls used to wait for her so they could kind of walk behind her and taunt her as she walked to school. Mm. And yeah, a few stories like that that she'd tell me, but I think, you know, as a youngster, it's just your parents telling you stories. You know, it's almost like when they say, when I had to go to school, I had to walk five kilometres. Or you know. <laughs> All our parents seem to have had the same walk to get to school. It's unbelievable. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, it's kind of as I got towards, I suppose, the end of primary school that you think, wow, you know, similar things are happening to me. You know, this is 30 years on in a completely different country albeit a country that's also gone through the, a colonial process, you know, the same way that Jamaica and Guyana did. Yeah. Yeah, it is interesting, especially that question of growing up black in Australia, because I obviously get it as well. And you're right, you know, when you're living it, you don't realise it at the time. It's just normal life, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. And I remember, you know, Kamara, because Kamara and I knew each other as kids growing up in Australia, and I remember Kamara sometimes when we would go out, people would ask us if we were twins. Oh, that's sweet. <laughs> because we were the same age. And it was kind yeah. of unfathomable that we could not be related in some kind of way, shape, or form. <laughs> well, let me ask do you guys even look alike? Or was that one of those all black people look alike thing? We no. don't look alike at all or in any way. Yeah, no, we, we definitely don't look alike. I, I do remember we did used to dress the same, but that's about that's it. That's true. <laughs> I think that was kind of some holding on to something, some kind of kinship that we, we yeah. felt when we would, would see each other because there weren't many other black people that we would spend time with. Yeah. So that was that was always a, a fun experience. Now, you've lived in um, London, Sydney, Melbourne, right? Am I correct in that? I haven't lived in London for any large length of time. So, you know, Mm -hmm. I think the longest I've stayed there is about three months. So I wouldn't say I've lived there, but I've definitely been there a lot, I guess, visited there a lot. Yeah. Sure. And your parents are from Guyana and Jamaica. um, So that's obviously part of your heritage. Where do you consider home for you? I mean, I think for me, home is Australia Mm -hmm. because I was born here, I've spent the vast majority of my life here, but I think that for me, you know, when I go to London, I still feel like I'm going home. Mm-hmm. The last time I went to England, even though my grandparents' house had been sold by that stage, you know, they'd passed away, I still kind of felt this impulse to go to Tottenham and walk down the street and it felt like walking home. So I think... You know, even though people will say where, you know, people say where do you live or where is home, I say Australia, I feel like there are many, many places that I feel at home. Right. I guess that's an interesting way to put it. Where do you feel at home? Something mm. different. Um, and when we think about home, we often think about food. And do you have an experience or, or favourite food from wherever you want to say home is? 
my grandma's Jamaican bun. Mm. <laughs> and her dumplings. She's not around anymore. And it's it's funny because we didn't see her that often. Both of my grandmothers at various times when I was a child actually came out to Australia to live with us for about six months. Mm-hmm. And having, I remember having them in the house and all of a sudden it's, oh, we can have these kinds of foods all the time. <laughs> because even though mum would make them, you know, it's not the same as grandma's dumpling or, or grandma's right. And, yeah, I try to re, I've tried to recreate it or bake it a couple of times. It never tastes the same. <laughs> I think there's something that comes with grandma's that just makes everything yeah. taste better. So do you have an experience or special memory with that? with the dumplings with your grandma's food? You know, I remember when, I don't know if it was the time that this is my paternal grandmother who was from Jamaica, and I think it was probably when she came out to live with us for a while in Australia, which would have probably been either, probably would have been about 1986, so I wouldn't have been, you know, I might have been six or seven. And she brought, these days you'd never get it through customs, but she brought dumplings that she'd cooked and packed in her suitcase. Mm. Wow. Like she baked all of this stuff to bring to us and was just opening her suitcase when we got to the house and then was just like, let's have dinner. And when I think about that today, I think you would those sniffer dogs will be all over that stuff, you know. (laughs) I just remember the shock and the delight of going, oh, my goodness, she actually cooked for us before she left England. And in those days, I think, you know, that flight was much longer than it was today. You know, you were talking almost 30 hours probably for the two flights. Oh, wow. So she really had you guys in mind and had you all hooked up, ready to go. Yeah, that's incredible. I think that's really, really sweet because there is that some that's something special about grandmas that you can't really experience with um any other relative I would say I see that with my own daughter like she has a very special connection with both of her grandmas Mm. and it is it is like a shared for most people it's a shared experience of like that warmth and that care and that nurturing that you get from those grandparents yeah absolutely so shifting a bit can you just share with us you know we've heard all of your accolades and for those who aren't as familiar with your work, can you just tell us about the focus of your of your writing and your creative work and why you choose to center around certain themes in this? Yeah, so all of my work, you know, I write across different genres, you know, poetry, short fiction, memoir. And I think, you know, all of my work really is starting conversations with the world, I suppose, that I think we should be having. So that most of my work centres blackness or the black experience. Um, And I think, you know, partly I grew up in Australia. I grew up in libraries, you know, that's kind of often where kids who feel like they maybe don't fit in end up hanging out. And just the realisation that there was nothing that spoke to my experience on the shelf. And I was devouring all of these kind of, you know, when you're a teenager or or preteen, the Babysitter's Club books and Judy Bloom and all those Mm -hmm. classic childhood books. But I just wasn't seeing, you know, occasionally I'd I'd be sent something by an auntie or an uncle. But this is pre-internet age where you could just kind of Google black books and you'd have a plethora of of choices. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, yeah, in some sense wanting to actually have my story or our stories out there on the shelf. I mean, I perhaps would not have articulated it that way at the time. I wasn't hyper-conscious that that's what I was doing. But, you know, even having with with my memoir, a lot of people kind of asking me, oh, oh, okay, where are you from? And I'd say, oh, I'm from Sydney. And they'd say, no, no, Mm. but where did you come here from? I said, no, I was born in Australia. And they'd look at me like, You know, at the time I was in my early 30s, so they'd look at me like, there's no way that African diaspora people were in Australia 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, that's partly why I wrote this memoir, was realising that actually this is, we are here, and, you know, there is stuff that we experience and there are things that we have to say. And I think lately my work has been about trying to find and amplify 
similar voices. So having been on the Australian literary scene now for a decade or so and not really seeing that much change, at least in terms of African diaspora authors, Mm -hmm. one of the projects that I really love working on recently was a collection uh, called Growing Up African in Australia, which Kamara actually had a piece in. (laughs) But, yeah, just that idea of kind of, I guess, being far along enough in my career now to try and start making sure that there's space, you know, having a tiny bit of clout to say, hey, okay, we we should be doing this book and finding all of those other voices. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, shameless plug, plug, plug. Hopefully we can link something to this collection of work so that you guys can read it and hear from Maxine as well as Kamara. And you mentioned a bit kind of like what drove you to creating your memoir, you know, people not really believing that there's this history of African and African diasporic people in Australia, can you talk about your journey creating your memoir and what those experiences were to help you build that that body of work? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things, I guess one of the other things I was finding difficult to articulate at the time when I decided to write the book was this idea of casual racism in Australia. I mean, there's a lot of overt racism in Australia, but Try having these discussions with friends where, you know, someone might yell something across the street, a racial slur or something, and they'd say, yeah, but that guy's an idiot. You know, he's just some guy driving a ute. And you'd kind of try and articulate, no, actually living in Australia as a person of colour, this is an ongoing everyday occurrence. So it's not actually just that one guy. This is a sequence of events that you're dealing with every day or week or month or year. And so I decided, you know, okay, I, I want to write a memoir about growing up in, you know, as, as an African diaspora person in Australia. But I also want to tell a story about racism. Um, and so I decided to write the memoirs called The Hate Race and I decided to write it in basically a series of small vignettes that are all about racial encounters The book kind of starts with my parents migrating to Australia in 1976 and really starting with the stairs that they got at the airport. Um, And then the memoir kind of goes up until my uh, kind of around 15 or 16. But it's funny because in the process of researching it, I found out a lot of things that I didn't know. So I found out that, you know, the first fleet, which was the first uh, suite of ships that brought convicts, English convicts to Australia, actually had 11 African or convicts of African descent on the boat. So, you know, all of these kind of this, this idea that black migration to Australia was a very recent thing kind of um, fell out the window. And then I actually found out that those migrants ended up living not that far from where I grew up. Wow. Um, And they all kind of married into the white English working class, I suppose. And so just things like that that I I thought I was telling my story and alongside that I ended up, you know, a lot of things were quite significant when I was growing up. Like 1998 we had um, something called the Bicentenary, which was kind of celebrating, you know, 200 years of of white arrival, celebrating Mm. in inverted commas. And that kind of, you know, the protest movement that grew out of that in terms of, you know, there was a slogan, don't celebrate 88 and white Australia has a black history and, you know, all of these kind of anti-colonial Aboriginal rights, black rights movements. So as I was telling this story, I slowly realised that the things that were happening in my life like had this direct correlation to what was going on politically in Australia at the time and what the kids in my classes were hearing in their lounge rooms and seeing on TV and all of those things. And so it was actually really an enlightening process. I think I realised more about my life in the two years I spent working on that book, you know, than I have in any other time. Yeah, it's an amazing opportunity to have that chance to kind of retrace your life and the life of the African diaspora 
in Australia. Yeah. And you also mentioned um, growing up African in Australia, which, you know, as you said, I have a chapter in, people, everybody, read the book. Read it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but again, you know, it was really interesting having the chance to share my story and it must have been interesting for you to also learn about the other people that you featured in the book so what was that like as well yeah that was really interesting there's a publisher in Australia called Black Ink Publishing and they'd done a series of anthologies with growing up in the title so they started with Growing Up Asian in Australia that was published about 10 years ago and then they followed up with Growing Up Aboriginal in Australia and then myself and two young Somali Australian writers, Ahmed Yusuf and Muggan Muggan, we were talking and saying, look, they should do a Growing Up African in Australia and we kind of said they'll never do it unless we go to them (laughs) and say you need Mm. this. And so the three of us contacted I think preemptively about five or six people. We then went to the publisher and said, look, this would slot right into your series. We already have the three of us plus five other people and we know, you know, we know that we can fill this book. Can we do it? And they were really positive about the idea. Um, and I suppose between the three of us, we knew a lot of people who had stories, you know, kind of like Kamara's story of growing up as a young black dancer in Sydney and then going on to found her own, you know, black British dance company. The publishers probably wouldn't have been able to put together the book on their own. So Mm. I just don't think they would ever have initiated it because they would have had to look outside of the literary world. But because between the three of us we were part of so many different black communities we knew that there were stories out there. And I think it was incredible to work with two other young uh, black editors. Part of the reason I wanted to do that was even though I have a capacity to edit, I don't love doing it. (laughs) And Ahmed and Muggan really wanted to be involved and had the skills and it was I kind of thought, you know what, if we did this in 10 years' time, I'd like to have, like, mentored someone to be able to do it do this without me so that idea of kind of legacy and um like skill sharing and 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 things like that really came into play and we got about 190 submissions I think wow yeah which was quite unexpected we you know we kind of thought yeah we'll get at least 60 probably and just that act of as someone who's gone to writers festival after writers festival and is constantly saying where are the you know african diaspora people where are the other writers and being told we just we don't know any they're not there and all of a sudden we have this concrete proof <laughs> you know this massive pile in front of us that yes they are here and the process of just reading through these stories of growing up African in Australia or of African descent in Australia was really emotional. You know, I never thought I'd get the opportunity to read so many African diaspora stories in Australia. And so, yeah, I mean, I I really hope there's a second edition because there was certainly enough material to kind of fill two books. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, so many things are popping out at me just hearing you talk about the process. One, like kudos congrats well done on the three of you coming together and getting the work done and I find that that is like I know I have common experiences here in the UK where you know people say well the black artists aren't there the black they're they don't exist and it's like yes there's a whole community and it's more so like they in commas I mean inverted commas are not doing the work or don't want to do the work to find them Mm -hmm. but that community is always there. Those voices are always there. Absolutely, absolutely. And it was really interesting. You know, when the book was announced, there was so much excitement, you know, not just from the African diaspora. You know, when the call-out was announced, you know, it was like, we're going to publish this book, we're looking at stories. There was so much excitement. And then when the book came out and people would read it and they'd tweet about it or they'd post it on their Instagram and there was just this shock, people would be like, this, this, these stories are good. This writing's good. Mm. And it was almost this shock that I felt as if there was this underlying, you know, this is a community project 
mm. you know, that that's going to be inferior and not a real anthology. And and I think a lot of non-black readers were shocked that, you know, this is a collection that is, you know, both has interesting stories and stands up on its literary merits. And I think that it's kind of sad that people were so shocked. Yeah, I mean, that, that just goes back to the stereotypes. But again, it's it's the reason why um, more voices like yours need to be mainstream, need to be commonplace. So it's not an unusual thing for people, for the wider audiences to, to hear or to see. It shouldn't be shocking at all. Yeah, very true. So some of your work is being translated onto the screen can you tell us about that or what, what the process has been like translating your work from page to screen? Yeah, so um, Foreign Soil, which is my short fiction collection, I'm currently in the development process of turning that into a short TV series um, of six mm-hmm. or so episodes. And I'm really at the beginning stage of the process, so I'm at the stage of writing treatments or halfway through the process of writing treatments which is just kind of the process of taking it from a short story and writing a you know 20 page plan for this is how it's going to look as a script these are the things that are going to be different you know or these these things are going to stay the same so it's very early I'm really enjoying it I think what I'm finding out about my writing is that it is actually quite cinematic in that I, I write I pay a lot of attention to things like atmosphere and scenery and and it feels easily translatable to, to the screen. Mm-hmm. It was optioned by an Australian film company called Film Camp and it's run by two Anglo-Australian women. But they're very, they seem very, they're just letting me do my thing, which I think was mm-hmm. one of my concerns was, you know, what if this gets optioned and ends up nothing like representing the black experience the way that I want it to. Right. But I, at the same time, have been working on um, adapting my memoir, The Hate Race, for the stage um, for a theatre company in Melbourne, and that has been very difficult. I think it's the only writing form I've tried that has really, like, I've torn my hair out. (laughs) You know, how do I make this work? which really surprised me. I don't know why, I think, because I've usually just been able to muddle through things. Mm. Once you're down to only dialogue and stage directions and you're relying Mm. on, you know, director, producer and so forth to create, you know, the atmosphere and the movement and things like that. It's like, it's almost like they took away half of your tools. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Now build a house, you know. But, yeah, it's been good because it's been challenging, but it's also I'm not sure I'll do it again. I'm not sure I'll write another play. Right. So how have you overcome those challenges then? Uh, I think looking at other people's works. So Mm. I've read a lot of Debbie Tucker Green, who's a black British playwright. I've kind of gone back to her scripts and gone, okay, actually there are different ways of doing things. Like I guess trying to find people who are doing things in different ways. Mm. I think taking a break helps as well, kind of just stepping away for a couple of weeks where that's possible. And I think, yeah, part of the issue with that is with a stage adaptation, you have a 270-page book that you have to get into an hour. So, you know, what am I prepared to let go? What am I, like, I've just learned to slash and burn um, right. and just getting over this idea but of like this is my life and I'm cutting out the whole of grade three you know <laughs> well it's very personal isn't it so you yeah. naturally want to tell the whole story yeah absolutely and the limits I mean this is the thing I've seen a lot of theatre but I didn't realise you know so they would say to me okay if we gave you the big theatre you could have five actors and I'm kind of going, what do you mean? There's like 40 characters that need to be in this play. And so then you're left with, okay, so this is a black family of five that lands in white suburbia and that's the story. So if you put five black actors on stage, how do you then tell the story with no white actors? <laughs> 
<laughs> so been yeah a real challenge in stylized theater and you know working around the constraints it's really like they give you a box of stuff and then tell you to build something and you just have to use whatever's in that box whereas the book writing process is so different you can do anything you want yeah and then just present what you've done yeah wow that definitely sounds like a huge challenge to your creativity I would guess maybe in good ways and in bad ways and you probably will come up I'm I'm sure you'll come up with something great (laughs) pushing through that challenge (laughs) so speaking of sort of like those challenges and switching over to a more positive side of achievements what would you say are some of your proudest achievements in your personal or professional life? I think definitely at the launch of Growing Up African in Australia, at the end of the, you know, when we'd done all the speeches and everything and we asked all the contributors who were there to get up on stage, just seeing all of those black writers. And it wasn't, I think there's 35 writers in the book and there were perhaps 16 or 17 who were able to be at the launch because some lived in other states and other countries. But just seeing all of those writers standing on stage, I think was an absolute highlight. It was like, we are here, (laughs) you know. You can see, you can read us, you know, that that was incredible. Yeah, that sounds incredible. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there there are various moments. I feel like my, the first, holding the first pic or handing the first picture book that I wrote to my kids And my daughter was funny. I think she was about four at the time. And she kind of was super nonchalant. She's just like, oh, yeah, whatever. And I was like, no, no, I wrote this. I wrote this. You have to read it. And then she she had her school library time and she came back with my book (laughs) from the school library. And I was like, oh, that's nice. You borrowed my book. We do have 10 copies in the house, but, you know, (laughs) that's nice. And then she borrowed my book four weeks in a row. (laughs) Oh, that's so precious. (laughs) That's so adorable. She felt like it was hers, you know. And also, you know, kind of sad because I thought that is probably one of the only few books in the library that has a little black girl on the cover and her mum wrote it, you know. (laughs) So it was kind of both a delight and also like I was like, damn, I need to write some more of these so she can borrow some other stuff. (laughs) Oh, that's so incredible. And that's so like kids to be like, yeah, whatever. But I know it had to feel amazing for her to, to borrow it so many times and it definitely does speak to the impact of representation and like seeing yourself in spaces where you don't normally see yourself, even for her to like feel that, I don't know, you know, we don't know what's in her mind, but mm-hmm. clearly if she's repeatedly borrowing that book out of the library, she was happy to see something that looked like her life and what she experiences. Wow. Yeah. And another really strange moment was not strange. I mean, it was great, but I was doing a um, talk at Melbourne Writers Festival and um, the short story collection is on the syllabus now in the, in the state where I live, on the Year 12 syllabus. Oh, that's amazing. And um, this group of boys came up to the signing table, you know, teenage boys, like 17, 18, all white kids, and they're like, oh, you're Maxine? I said, yeah, I'm Maxine. They said, oh, we studied your book for... The, they call it the VCE, it's kind of like O-level type thing. Or A, what's it called? I don't know what it's called in the UK. Yeah, A-levels. A-levels, yeah. And they said, we loved your book and they told me where they, the school where they came from and it was a tiny country school like two hours out of Melbourne and they said, you know, we have never met any We'd never met any African diaspora people in actual, you know, real life. We'd never met any characters, you know, anyone like the characters in your book. And we just, it was like a door to a whole new world. You know, we just absolutely loved it. And I was just in shock. (laughs) I mean, I know that reading does that, you know, reading lets you experience other people's lives. You know, we... We talk a lot about the power of representation for our kids and for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I think about it, I think 
you know, imagine being, I mean, not, not, not just kind of being a country white kid, but imagine being a black kid in a high school class and getting to watch your white classmates be made to read black literature, you know, mm. that we need to see everyone reading it. You know, I'm often asked, who do you write for? And, of course, I'm writing for my community. I'm writing for the younger Maxine. But I also think, you know, there's a sense in which it's like, well, everyone, <laughs> everyone read it, you know. <laughs> and, yeah, that I think that moment was a real eye-opener, just this idea that there's these, you know, six, you know, 18-year-old white country boys that have now read this collection that's set in, you know, Uganda, Jamaica, Sudan, Australia, the UK, and it's about black characters. And probably if they if it hadn't been on their syllabus, they never ever would have reached for. Yeah, that's that is amazing. And and with foreign soil, there is such a diverse uh, range of characters in there that, like you said, most of the characters they would never meet any of those people. Mm-hmm. And I guess I think of that as well. You know, there's a lot of books that I read that I'm just like, wow, this is a whole, you know, this is a whole new experience. You know, I just, yeah. Books are like whole worlds, you know? Yeah, definitely. I certainly love reading them. And it's, it's a preference, I would say, for me to take in stories and experience new things and definitely an escape for me in some ways and also a learning tool. You know, with the impact that you're seeing that your writing is having on different communities and different age groups, how does that make you feel? How does that motivate you? I mean, sometimes I feel like, I think particularly in recent times with the pandemic and with, you know, what's happening with Black lives all over the world, sometimes it feels, even though you know that some kid somewhere is going to pick up your book and get something out of it, or, or some adult somewhere, it sometimes feels like, you know, there's that expression, don't fiddle while the house is burning. You know, that idea that you're just out there playing music while the whole world is on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it does feel like that, you know. I mean, there is this kind of, I guess there are certain writers who changed, I feel changed my life, you know, like James Baldwin or... Maya Angelou or, you know, some, you know, incredible poets. But, yeah, I, I, I do sometimes feel like, is it enough? You know, am I actually doing enough? You know, maybe it's time to put down the pen and go out onto the streets. Not that I don't do both, but, yeah, I feel like for me there is that constant tug because I don't write. I guess because my impetus for writing isn't just because I love to write. It's because I, I believe that it can make a difference. and But sometimes I do worry about, have I stopped believing that? You know, am I ever going to stop believing that? And and what will happen to my work? Will I just put down a pen? Or, but yeah, there are definitely those moments where people write to you or people tweet you or people, you know, say to you, you know, at an event or whatever, look, this this work has been absolutely instrumental to me or teachers will come and say, I could finally have something to teach our African diaspora students. And that, yeah, that's, you you don't forget it. You know, you don't forget it. Mm. Do you know what your purpose is? Oh, that's a deep question. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I guess to just contribute to the world as best as I can, I think, you know, whether that's, raising good socially conscious kids or putting out good socially conscious work or making good food. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I believe that I was supposed to write, you know, it feels like, you know, I think everybody feels this with their passion that when they do it, it feels like, oh, this is what I was made to do. But if I had to stop it for any reason, you know, that would also be okay. I would find another way to contribute. Yeah, that's good that you can feel that comfort there. So mm. now that you know what you know now, what advice would you give your younger self? I think keep not caring. Like I think as a child, you know, there was a, a point in my life, maybe about 13 or 14, where I just like stopped giving a shit. But yeah, where it was just like, 
you know what, I don't really care what people think. You know, I know what I want to do. I know, you know, I know my purpose. I mean, obviously there are those moments of doubt or of hesitation um, or of challenge, but I think I would tell myself that earlier. Mm. I think there was a, a large period of my childhood, you know, everyone's childhood where it really is about fitting in and there really is a lot of misery if you don't. And even when you say that to kids, you know, you know, sometimes when I do school visits and that, you know, kids will come up and they'll say, I love writing poetry and stuff, but my friends aren't really interested. And you'll just say, you know what, this, this time doesn't matter. You know, you'll find your people and you're going to have an amazing ride. And, you know, and I think that advice, even though my younger self probably would have said, go away, you strange woman. <laughs> you know? <laughs> what are you talking about? I just want to fit in. <laughs> yeah. To relax and be myself and not to care so much what people think. Yeah. Yeah, that is definitely important. And as you said, in childhood, even in adulthood, we spend a lot of time worrying about what other people think or, you know, what the repercussions might be, or sometimes we hesitate to fully step forward into what we know we should be doing. So, mm. you know, we're grateful that you do that in your writing and your work. And thinking about your work, what do you, you said you're able to still work now, we've got the pandemic happening, what are you working on at the moment? What can we look forward to, Maxine? <laughs> so I'm supposed to have been working on these two adaptations, but because of lockdown and having two kids at home, I actually, during our first, we're in our second six-week lockdown here in Melbourne, and during the first, I actually made it a new picture book. Um, the picture book is called When We Say Black Lives Matter. Wow. It's kind of a story of a little boy and his two parents, mum and dad, um, and just them telling him from the moment he's born that Black Lives Matter and reminding him of history and of why Black Lives Matter and about black joy and about, you know, black fear and black sorrow and black friendship, black love. So it's just kind of really an affirmation for kids at this really, I think it's a really difficult time, particularly for black children, you know, like turning the television on every day and just seeing people that look like you being, you know, harassed and murdered. So I wanted to make something that really you could put into a young child's hands that would be not too terrifying but, you know, would also be really empowering and positive and, you know, tell them that they matter. So that was a really, really, like, joyous thing to be able to work on at a time when the world seems to be crumbling. That's a really important book that you've written there. And like you said, you know, for children, we, we sometimes don't appreciate the impact it does have on them seeing certain images on the news. I know that both myself and Heather, we did speak to our own students and, you know, the things that they say that they see that we don't appreciate that they see. So, so important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's amazing that you've come up with that now and I look forward to seeing it. Likewise. And we're about to round up our conversation for today. It has been so wonderful speaking to you. But before we finish up, we do have a surprise question that we like to ask all of our guests. Mm -hmm. Our podcast is called Yams and Yucca, so we need to know what you prefer, yams or yucca, and how do you like them cooked? Oh, my goodness. I don't know what yucca, are, yucca is. <laughs> Uh, do you know cassava? Yes, I know cassava. Yeah, that's what yucca is, oh, is cassava. Okay. <laughs> Probably yams, I would say. And both cooked with butter. <laughs> yes. <laughs> now for your yams, are you are we talking about traditional African yam or are we talking about sweet potatoes? Uh, African yam. Okay. Although I like both. Nice. And what's a perfect meal or how would you make a nice meal with that, with all that butter? <laughs> Maybe some jerk sausage. My auntie's really wow. good jerk sausage and gravy and yams and butter. <laughs> Maybe some okra in there, Maybe. 
Yes. yes. Come on, meal. I don't eat any of those things, but that sounds like something delicious. <laughs> These are things that I never cook myself. <laughs> I have this thing. I don't know if you have it, that it's like foods that my mom cooked a lot or my grandma. My mom didn't cook those things like my grandma. It feels like I shouldn't be cooking them. Right. Yeah. It feels like a thing that I did, you know, that they cooked. And when I try and create it, recreate them, I just always end up feeling really nostalgic and a bit sad. <laughs> right. Aww. Well, you know, so it's nice to have those memories, but sometimes you also feel like you don't quite give it justice that it deserves. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so, not the best in the world. <laughs> I'm sure you do just fine. And I have seen some of your pictures of your homegrown foods as well, so they look delicious too. Yeah, I love gardening. I love gardening, although I haven't managed to grow yams yet. <laughs> well, there you go, yams and yucca. Put it on the list. Um, so, Maxine, tell us, how can listeners learn more about you and your work? I am on Twitter at, at SlamUp, S-L-A-M-U-P, which is a bit of a weird handle, but it's back in back from Slam Poetry Days. And I'm on Instagram at Maxine Beneba, B-E-N-E-B-A. Excellent. Thank you, Maxine, so much. I have so many gems that I've written down, so many um, impactful moments. I just really appreciate you opening up and sharing your journey with us and telling us all about your great work. I hope the listeners have enjoyed this and have learned something. I'm sure that they have. We will definitely link your books and your work in the description box so that people can go find them definitely growing up african in australia shout outs to both of you contributing (laughs) go get it (laughs) yes and i'm looking forward to um when we say black lives matter i'm looking forward to that book i'm definitely going to get that for my daughter so please keep us posted on that yeah we need that we need that work in the world will do Yeah, thank you so much, Maxine. We do. I'm excited to see everything that's coming up for you. I'm excited to see how, you know, you finally put your work onto the stage and for the the TV series. That's something I'm definitely looking forward to. And yes, we will have to speak to you again soon. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks so much. It's been such a great conversation. Thank you. It has been such a hearty conversation. There's so much to digest. So many gems, um, so many thinking points. So I'm looking forward to hopefully having you back on the show to just share with us as you continue to develop your work. So we're going to take a quick little break. And when we come back, it will be time for dessert. We'll be right back. And we are back. It is time for our sweet and savory desserts. We're going to recap those special moments from our conversation with Maxine, our sweet sugary moments, and our savory stick to the stomach fulfilling moments that really hit home for us. So I will start off. I had so many moments in general throughout the whole conversation. I just felt like my pen was on fire. But my sweet moment is really centered around or I should say sweet moments, they're really centered around food. And she was talking about her grandmother's food so many times. You know, she had the time where she was, she mentioned something about how there's just certain things that you have with your grandmother or certain family members that you can't really like replicate or Mm -hmm. you don't get to eat with like your parents or anything like that. So those times that you're eating and making food with them are really, really special and um, I was really tickled by the fact that her grandma traveled to England with like a full dinner, like right. prepared and everything, <laughs> yeah. got through customs. I was like, now that that's serious. Right. <laughs> exactly. She fully smuggled it, smuggled it in. Right. And I remember she said that, you know, nowadays that just wouldn't, wouldn't that wasn't going to fly. No. <laughs> customs at all. We have that airport show that's set in Australia. You know, oh, the yeah, one I going know. through customs. I can't remember what it's called, but I should know this because I watched it throughout my entire like maternity leave. <laughs> <laughs> People 
people really try it coming through customs. Like, and they sit there specifically on the show. They look at those the officers. They're like, "What? What do you mean?" Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I have three thousand pounds worth of <laughs> whatever they're bringing in. So what? <laughs> they're like, I don't know. It's, it's always so funny to me how they just sit there and act like. It's a surprise every time they get caught. I know, I know, but yeah. Anyway, that's off the subject. What about you? What was your what was your sweet moment, Kamara? My sweet moment was when she described the boys coming up to her when she was at a book signing. She said that mm-hmm. there was um, some boys from a country town who came to her and fangirled her. And I can just imagine, you know, it just must have been such a delight for them. And she said that they'd never met characters like in her book, Foreign Soil, or uh, a Black author before. And, you know, the characters in in Foreign Soil are really, they represent marginalised groups. Mm -hmm. I can just imagine them just seeing her and being so excited. That was just really nice that they gave her that reception that she you know, that she deserves. Yeah, that's really, really, it's really nice. And what about your savory moment? My savory moment was that she went with her idea for the book, Growing Up African to Australia, Growing Up African in Australia, rather, to the publishers. Like she took the idea to them. I thought Mm -hmm. that was really kind of just represented, you know, when you believe in something to really put it forward and to go forward with it with confidence. Uh, So that's why that was my savory moment. And then I'm going to be a little bit greedy, um, but I have another one that when she said the message to her younger self was to keep not caring. I Mm. think that's a nice thing as well, because even as adults, it's, you know, so much easier said than done to say don't care what other people think. But, Mm -hmm. you know, we're human at at the end of the day with emotions and sometimes we do. So... So yes, I thought that was that was a good message. Um, what was your savory moment? I'm actually going to piggyback off one of your savory desserts. I'm going to have still a little piece of that. It was about the book Growing Up African in Australia. And to me, I just thought it was really empowering and really inspirational to hear about how she just wanted to bring people together. Mm-hmm. She did the work. Um, along with the other editors as a collective to find the people to write about it. And that same old story that we are told all the time, oh, like Black people or ethnically diverse people don't exist working in X, Y, or Z industry like no that's not true we work in every type of industry that imaginable and we create our own so you know when we're given that same old excuse of why something doesn't exist to represent other voices Mm. and we have to galvanize to do it ourselves that's what she did her and the editors and all of you yourself included you guys just did the work and stepped up to show that yes our voices are important we exist and she she mentioned something about you know wanting to create a legacy, wanting to, it's like skill sharing Mm. amongst the creatives. And it's just that sense of community of expertise. I like to surround myself with, with people who do different things. Like just even my friends group from college, like I'm the only dancer. I'm not the only artist. I can't say that, but I'm the only dancer. Mm. I'm the only working professional artist ish but we all have different skills and we share those skills with each other on a daily basis like we have lawyers in our group you know there's someone always asking for legal advice or you know what should we do who should we approach to get support that way we have teachers we have doctors we have business people in our group lobbyists all that stuff so you name it and that kind of like collective skill sharing and community uplifting like I really yeah, that's going to stick with me. And kudos to you for being proud of that. And to Maxine, of course, mm-hmm. for doing Thank that. Thank you. And shameless plug, go ahead and plug yourself again. Look, <laughs> in case you didn't catch it the first few times, uh, growing up African in Australia, definitely go and pick it up. But um, yes, Heather, I would totally agree with you and how she said it about giving skills to the next generation so she leaves a legacy I think that is something Mm -hmm. really important and something well I know myself I I think about what difference am I going to make in the world through the work that I do so I guess 
that's something to think about. And it's also something really good to end on, really. What is your legacy? Yeah, Yeah, listeners, tell us, what is your legacy? We want to know. We're always thinking about that for ourselves and what we do in our work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But to send us what you're doing and what difference you mm-hmm. you want to make in the world or if you've figured out what your purpose is and do share it with us. And on that note, I think we will leave it there for today. And yeah. we want to thank you all for listening. Please let us know what your sweet and savory moments were using the hashtag Yams and Yuka. Don't forget to tag us at Yams and Yuka on Twitter and Yams and Yuka podcast on Instagram and Facebook. You know, we also have our email, yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com. Again, that is yamsandyukapodcast at gmail.com. Yes, we want to hear your thoughts on today's conversation. We always love to hear from you. So let's keep the discussion going. Please feel free to share your stories as well and add to our Yams and Yuka tapestry. And we will chat with you guys again next time. See you later. Bye.